know, church, I, um, I saw an interesting statistic this week that kind of caught me off guard. Uh, did you know that Ancestry.com takes in over $1 billion every year? Billion, with a, with a B. Three, over 30 million subscribers worldwide. People love to dig in and see the story of their past, to see the people and the places that they have come from, those whom they are related to, the family trees and the lineage that takes place. A small part of my story is back in the 1930s, a young, scrapping young man went into a bank in Horse Cave, Kentucky, and he saw a bank teller, and she caught his eye. He kept going to her window time after time. Eventually, he works up the courage and invites her to go out on a date. The two of them eventually get married. They have three children, two girls and a boy. One of those girls will grow up and go to Murray State University in Kentucky, and it's there at Murray State. Her roommate is dating a guy, and the guy shows up one day, and the roommate's not there, and so he says to her, hey, you want to go on a date with me? And she says, well, sure. So the two of them go out on a date, they fall in love, they get married, and eventually they have the most awesomest of sons ever, okay? Okay, Okay, I'm the baby of the family, that's how we talk, okay? It's a family lineage. Maybe you have a story that you can think back of not only parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, and it goes on and on all the way back. The backstory of who you are and what you have become based upon those who have gone before you. Well, you see, Christmas time is a time in which the church of Jesus Christ looks backward, in which we remember what God has done and that he took on flesh. He became like one of us. We celebrate the birth of no ordinary baby that's born in Bethlehem. And yet this baby is connected to a human ancestry that goes back thousands of years. The story of Jesus' birth is directly connected to the stories of his family that goes back for generations upon generations, even before him. And what we're going to see this morning in Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus and the family that points forward to his birth. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. During this Christmas season, we're going to be doing a sermon series called Holy Family. We're going to be looking at the family tree of Jesus this morning and the genealogy, the lineage of people that point towards the arrival of Jesus. Now, we're going to be reading in just a moment one of the most neglected passages of Scripture. Uh, Maybe as you've read the Gospel of Matthew, you kind of skim over the top of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. You see a whole list of names. You're like, "Ah, I don't know the importance of this, and we keep moving. Oftentimes, this is neglected in, in lots of sermons from pastors because there's so much to unpack here. But I want us to take some time to do that. Now, full disclosure, if I had my preference, we would be here all day unpacking verses 1 through 17. Okay, I would love to spend an entire day just digging deep into this because the deeper you go into this passage, the wider it gets and there's richer truths to continually explore and to discover. But for the sake of our time, we're not going to do that today. Maybe another day we'll come back together and we'll do that and we'll dig deeper into Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. But let's look at the text of scripture together in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 beginning with verse 1 and the scripture says this. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife, Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah, Abijah fathered Asa, Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon, Amon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Sheltiel, Sheltiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiud, Abiud fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Akim, Akim fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Matan, Matan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. When we look at the family line of Jesus, it's not unlike many of our families. Even though Jesus' genealogy is full of great heroes of the faith, these are people who are also full of great sin and who bring scandal and embarrassment to their families. The family lineage of Jesus is not so holy after all. This morning, I want you to notice in the text how God works in, through, and around the sins of his people to bring forth his son. The first thing I want you to see in the text is this. Jesus' genealogy reveals God's sovereign plan pointing to Jesus. Jesus' genealogy reveals God's sovereign plan pointing to Jesus. Matthew's primary purpose for writing his gospel is to reach Jews for Jesus. He uses more Old Testament references than Mark, Luke, and John combined. Why? It's because he is proving to Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He wants Jews to know that Christ is the one that you have been looking for. Well, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy that culminates in Jesus Christ. You see, genealogies are a big deal to Jewish people. The Old Testament is littered with genealogies. You'll see it throughout Genesis and Exodus. You'll see them in Ezra, the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles. They are uh, genealogies that are pointing forward to someone. We see in the text that Jesus is the highlight. He is the focus. He is the culmination of God's sovereign plan. Matthew is connecting the dots for his readers and showing the generational timeline that is fulfilled in Jesus. You see, God's plan has always been to send forth his son into the world, and his sovereign plan was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Now, whenever our family goes on vacation, Christy and I will typically plan out about a year in advance. We'll, We'll find the dates, we'll pick a place, and then we'll begin to plan out how we're going to get there, the the food we're going to eat along the way, uh, hotels we'll stay at, what we're going to do while we're there experiencing the vacation. And as much detail and preparation and planning we do for that year leading up to that vacation, can I tell you a little secret? 
something always falls apart. As much as we work hard to make sure everything goes just according to plan, it never does. Something happens. Someone gets sick. Uh, something is closed. It's just the plans don't always work out the way that we want them to. What we see in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, is that God, over the course of thousands of years, had a plan, and he fulfilled it perfectly. God had a perfect plan, and that plan was executed perfectly. I can't plan out a vacation a year in advance. Here is over the course of thousands of years, we see God's sovereign plan unfolding and fulfilled and realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, God could have done it any way that he wanted to. He could have chosen any kind of path, but this was the path that he chose. He chose through the family lineage of Abraham, that he would send forth his son. And you see, as you study this text, each and every person here has a name, every name has a story, and every story has a purpose behind it, a bigger unfolding plan realized in Jesus Christ. You see, Matthew's purpose in putting these verses, this genealogy here, is so that the, the readers will go, oh, oh. That's why they're in the Old Testament. Oh, that's why. Okay, now it's starting to make sense. He's connecting the dots. He's helping you to see the bigger picture that God gave meticulous detail in the plan and it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. You see, as we study the lineage, these people and their stories in the Old Testament, we see the lives that they live and the choices that they make and the sins that they commit and the repentance that they demonstrate. And all of those are ordered in such a way to fulfill God's ultimate plan in Jesus Christ. So if God makes sure to take care of every meticulous detail over thousands of years fulfilled in Jesus, why are you worried about tomorrow? You see, worry is what you feel when you think God's not going to get it right. And we get worried and anxious about certain things, thinking God is not going to come through. He's going to make a mistake. He's going to fail, and ultimately he's not. Corey Tinboom said it this way, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. That we are a people who should not look to the world around us in fear. We don't look at our future and tremble. We don't look at our lives and despair. You see, God will accomplish his sovereign plan. What we see in verses 2 through 17 is from generation to generation, God is faithful. Even after all of us are dead and gone, God will accomplish his sovereign plan. This is terrible English, but great theology. Nothing and nobody will ever stop God. Nothing and nobody will ever stop God. God has never failed, and he won't start now. He will not stop being God. He knows who he is. He will accomplish his purposes and his plans, and they will be fulfilled. God is never at a point in which he's wringing his hands in worry. There's never a point in which he doesn't know what's going to happen before it happens. He can rest secure in who he is, and as one who belongs to him by faith in his son, we too can rest with him. We can have confidence about tomorrow, afraid of nothing, because we have Christ. We know who holds the future. Hear me, you can trust him. You may worry and be anxious about the future. Don't. 
Entrust your soul. Rest in him because he has a plan and he will bring it to fulfillment. The second thing we see in the text is Jesus' genealogy reveals God's covenant promises fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew highlights in verse 1 two key Old Testament figures, Abraham and David. Two people whom God made special covenants with. All right, what's a, what's a covenant? A covenant is a binding legal agreement between two parties. In Genesis 12, we see where God made a covenant with Abram, that God would make him into a great nation, that his name would become great, and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You see, through Abraham would come a family, a lineage. It's what we see in verse 2 and following. God keeps his promise. And this covenant would ultimately find its fulfillment in Jesus. You see, Jesus is the blessing promised to Abraham. Jesus is the one whose name is great through Abraham. Jesus is the one who is the blessing to the nations. I find it really interesting that Matthew begins his gospel in chapter one with Abraham, to whom God makes the covenant, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then how does Matthew's gospel end? You get to Matthew 28, and what does he do? We see Jesus sending out his disciples, saying, go and make disciples of all nations. The fulfillment that is found in Jesus through the promise to Abraham is now being sent out through his people to make much of Christ. So the evangelistic thrust of Matthew's gospel, in which he's pointing people to Jesus, getting the gospel to the nations, is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God made a promise to Abraham, and he kept that promise. And we can see God's promise, God keeping his promise all throughout Matthew chapter 1. In 2 Samuel 7, we see where God makes a covenant with David, the king, and God promises that through him, he would raise up a king, David's son, one who would sit on David's throne forever. In 2 Samuel seven thirteen, the Lord says, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A house, a throne, a kingdom, a dynasty in the lineage of David, a throne to rule over the people, a king ruling over a kingdom well, as you read your Old Testament, we see that king after king rises and falls because they did not fulfill what God promised to David. If we were to go through the list of kings there in verses 6 on down, it's a list of failed king after failed king after failed king. You see, those were the ones who ultimately would not sit on David's throne forever. Israel was looking for a king who would rule and reign forever. Well, Matthew is drawing a straight line through the line of the kings that leads to the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. God's plan all along was to have a king that would sit on David's throne forever, and it's fulfilled in Jesus Jesus is the greater son of David who rules and reigns over his kingdom forever. And God promised Abraham, through him all the nations will be blessed. That's fulfilled and realized in Jesus. And through you, David, there's going to become a king. That king is realized in Jesus. God keeps his promises. God makes a, a promise to his people and he keeps it. I want you to grab hold of this. Genealogies in scripture Point to the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. 
God is faithful to keep his promises. God is faithful to keep his promises. Paul says it like this. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. What Paul's driving home is that all the promises that God makes under the old covenant are fulfilled in Jesus, they're pointing to Jesus, they're realized in Jesus. Stay with me. Now that you are a follower of Jesus, those promises now apply to you. Stay with me right there. This is huge. The promises of God that are made and fulfilled in Jesus now apply to you, you who belong to Jesus. So now you can bask in the promise, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. I am the one who was and is and is to come. I will send my Holy Spirit and he will live inside of you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. For you have the Holy Spirit, the seal, the deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance. Promise after promise after promise that Christ himself abides, lives inside of you. That God is gonna be with you. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment you take your last breath, you're with Christ. These promises that are precious, these precious promises that are very great, God makes to us and He keeps His promises. That means the, the significant decision you made at Vacation Bible School when you were young to put your faith in Jesus, as a teenager at summer camp, as a senior adult sitting at a lunch table, I had a 35 year old man walk down the aisle at the end of the last service saying, Man, I need Jesus. Okay, that moment that you trust in Christ. That's the moment that all the promises of God now apply to you. That God enters into a covenant with you. And that covenant is sealed with blood. It's not your blood. It's the blood of another. The blood of Jesus that speaks a better word over your life. And through the precious blood of Christ, God now covenants himself into a permanent relationship with you. This is what God has done for you in the gospel. And the significance of his promises is that he says, I'm gonna be with you even to the end of the age. The promise of his presence, the promise of his power, the promise of his provision, the promise that I'm gonna be with you even when you take your last breath. For those of you in this room who are fearful of death, look unto the Lord Jesus Christ where you no longer have to fear death. You can find hope and confidence because you are hidden in Jesus who has made precious and very great promises to you. Those of you who are held fast by shame and guilt over your past, may I say to you, look unto Jesus who promises, I will remember your sins no more. You are washed, you are sanctified in the name of our God. You are a clean, sanctified saint because of Jesus. You are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. All these rich promises that God makes to you, they are yours when you believe the gospel. So we see God entering into a covenant with Abraham, with David. It's fulfilled in Jesus. And because of Jesus, and because his shed blood on the cross for you, and because you turned from your sin, you repented and trusted in Christ by faith and what he did for you at the cross. Now, through faith in Christ, God covenants with you and says, you now belong to me forever. And all the promises that are yes and amen in my son are now in your life, and they are true for you. 
This is where we go as followers of Jesus. We cling tight to the Lord Jesus Christ who has made precious and very great promises to us. The third thing I want you to see in the text is that Jesus' genealogy reveals God's overarching purpose realized in Jesus. Y'all, here's the thing. If God's plans were dependent upon man's obedience, we would be in big trouble. And yet, one of the underlying, uh, underlying themes throughout the Bible is that God works in, through, and around the failures of his people to accomplish his greater purpose. Now, we hold up so many of these great heroes of the faith in chapter one, and we should, right? And yet, so many of these men listed in chapter one brought scandal upon Jesus' family tree, Verse two, Abraham, he lied twice about Sarah being his sister and not his wife. Why? To save himself from being executed by a king. He also slept with Hagar, bringing Ishmael instead of, in, into the world, instead of trusting God and trusting his, his timing. Isaac, verse two, was just like his dad. He lied about his wife being his sister so that he would not get in trouble so he could save himself. Verse two, Jacob, he deceived his father and he cheated his brother. Judah, verse 3, sold his brother Joseph into slavery. And then he broke God's law by not giving his youngest son in marriage to Tamar. And then he ends up having an affair with her when she posed as a prostitute. Verse 6, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, has her husband Uriah killed off so he can marry her and cover his sin when she got pregnant with his child. Verse 7, Solomon married hundreds of foreign wives who turned his heart away from the Lord. This is the scandalous family lineage of Jesus. And yet Matthew's genealogy here, it's intriguing. Because he includes women in on this list. That's shocking. You see, when you look at Jewish genealogies, women are never listed, ever. What we see Matthew doing is showing how not only the value of women, but the significant role that they play in bringing forth the Messiah. That God was working behind the scenes, even in and through the lives of women to accomplish his greater purpose of sending Christ. And yet each of these four women are marked by brokenness. Tamar, verse 3. She tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her so that because he would not fulfill his vow. And yet, God still used the soap opera drama between Tamar and her father-in-law to keep the lineage moving forward towards the Messiah. Rahab, verse 5, was a Canaanite prostitute. She hid the Israelite spies when they came into the promised land. Rahab and her family, they escaped Jericho. They eventually go into the promised land she marries Salmon, verse 5. <laughs> Check this. She becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David, the lineage of the Messiah. Ruth, verse 5, isn't even Jewish. She's a Moabite. She marries an Israelite barley farmer because her first husband died. And yet God worked through this foreign woman to carry the lineage forward towards the Messiah, Bathsheba. Verse six, married to Uriah. She slept with David, had his child. David kills off her husband. 
David then marries Bathsheba. And yet God used that evil, sinful situation to carry the lineage forward towards the Messiah. You see, God loves to use broken people with messed up lives to display his glory because even the sins of his people can never derail God's overarching purposes. Hold fast to that right there. Take comfort, beloved, that your sin is never so great that God can't forgive you. There's no sin you've ever committed in which God stops loving you, in which he cannot redeem, restore, and work in your life. Hear me today. You are not defined by your sin. You're not defined by your past. You're defined by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have turned from your sin and trusted in him by faith, you are no longer defined by your past. You're defined by Christ. What we see God doing in and through the brokenness and the shame and the scandal of Jesus' family tree is that God promised to send forth a redeemer who would come forth and he is Jesus who has the power and authority to redeem the brokenness of his family and the brokenness of your family. That's the power of Jesus in the gospel is that he takes sin and brokenness and all of the things that are messed up in my life, in your life, and he's able to turn it around and use it for the good of his people, for the fame of his name, and the advancement of the gospel. You see, you and I are not so important that we can ruin God's plans and purposes. Even in our sin, even in our disobedience, even in all of the shame that comes with our rebellion against God, we still can't thwart his purposes. Now, Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Romans 6.1, by no means, absolutely not. We are a people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I, we are pursuing holiness. We're going hard after Christ. We're daily denying ourselves, picking up our cross and following Jesus. We are walking not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We are putting to death the deeds of the body so that we might live. We are pursuing Jesus. And yet when we do sin, we have Jesus Christ, the advocate, a defense attorney, the one who is our savior and redeemer who gets involved in our lives. He restores, he forgives, he reconciles, he transforms us, brings us back to a right relationship with himself and then overflows that into a right relationship with other people. And God takes the shame and the sin of this world and he turns it around for the good of his people. This is what God's doing here in Matthew chapter one is we see a long list, a long list of just brokenness and shame, a need for a savior. Well, the savior does come into the world to save sinners. And it's through a family lineage of adulterers and murderers and slave traders and prostitutes and liars and cheats. Jesus' family tree is full of embarrassing mess-ups and black sheep and scandals. Don't think that your family has to be perfect. Jesus's isn't. Don't think that you've got to put on some facade on social media that, you're, that your family is crushing it. Jesus isn't. In fact, I want to encourage you that when you're on social media and you see someone's family post and everything looks perfect and put together, it's a highlight reel. That ain't real life. All of us have messy families. All of us di- deal with difficulty and challenges What you're not seeing behind that picture is the stress and the sin and the brokenness that everybody experiences. And may I say to you, when we gather as a church, don't feel like you've got to put on a a mask like you're crushing it and your family's well put together. Because the struggle is real for all of us. 
we are still a people in desperate need of grace. We are a people who still need the grace of Jesus. We never graduate beyond his need for grace. So don't walk around peacocking like you're crushing it. We are a people who are daily in need of Jesus. It's interesting, out of all 51 names mentioned there in chapter one, verses one through 17, only one of those 51 names is perfect. It's Jesus. But as one who now belongs to him, we now pursue hard after him. We are a people who seek him and want to know him and want to follow him as imperfectly as we are and as imperfectly as we pursue him. He is still faithful and kind and gentle and patient and loving towards you. I, I, was, I was thinking earlier about the power and, and the weight of God that if he brought all of it down on to us at one time, it would be crushing and the best way I can describe it is be kind of like if the clouds opened up and dropped all of the water at one time, it would destroy crops. So what does God do? He brings it down into small drops. Just enough to strengthen, to nourish, to satisfy, but not so much to destroy and obliterate. God does the same with you. He gives you enough of himself to strengthen and to satisfy in these doses and these, these amounts that you can handle and as you mature as a believer, the doses get larger. But it's always enough to satisfy without destroying you. It's just interesting to me how God sovereignly chose to send his redeemer through an unlikely, messy family to redeem messy and broken people from broken families. Maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I've, I've got a messy family. People in my life were making bad decisions and they're in rebellion and making foolish decisions. They're hardening their hearts towards God. It is heartbreaking to see what's happening in your family. May I say to you, Jesus hasn't given up yet. Jesus is still powerful enough to save and redeem and to work in their hearts. If they're still breathing, Jesus can still work. And so I invite you, here's the impact point, the challenge I'm bringing before our church, and it's this. Every, pray for lost family members every day this week. Pray for lost family members by name every day this week. This week, as you think about family in your life who are far from God, may your first reaction not be anger or angst, but prayer. You bow your knee and you get low and you bring their name before God. You ask him to bring them low so that they might focus their eyes upon Christ. You pray that God would open their hearts to the gospel. Pray that God would reconcile broken relationships. So I want to invite you this week to pray. Pray by name for people in your life, family members who are living messy, broken lives because they need Jesus just like we do. But I also want to invite you this week to pray for future generations. Would you pray for future generations from your own family that they would come to know Jesus? Something I've been praying for many years now is that the next 10 generations of bruises, Bruce's would love Jesus and his church. I can't control that. That's something only God can do. But oh, that you would pray that generation upon generation through your family tree would come to love and follow Jesus. I was encouraged this week by an article written by Trevin Wax. Trevin's one of my favorite writers. And he posted an article this week about an experience he had six years ago when he was in London. And he was at a conference honoring Charles Spurgeon. 
And at this conference, they finished up the conference by going to Charles Spurgeon's cemetery plot. And it is there that Trevin took this picture right here. On the far right is Susanna, the great-great-granddaughter of Charles Spurgeon. Right before this picture was taken, she read a prayer written by Charles Spurgeon in which in the old king's English, he is begging and pleading for future generations of his family lineage that they would love and follow Jesus. And here is Susanna with her husband and her children, and they love Jesus, and they love the church. And Trevin talked about how in this moment, it hit him like just a ton of bricks, that the fulfillment of Charles's prayer was happening right there in front of him. He was praying for future generations to love Jesus. And here she is standing in front of his grave. I want to invite you to do the same. To pray and call down heaven. That God would save future generations in your family. That God would work in the hearts of children and grandchildren. That eventually they would come to the point in time in which they would trust in Christ. And through their faith in Jesus... God would make you a holy family, a family that belongs to Jesus, to Jesus forever.